Our scripture reading this morning comes from the first letter of John, uh, verses five, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, it is always a pleasure to be here in the morning to bring God's Word to you. It is good to see everybody. I, I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. I wasn't here last week, and uh, it was nice to see the students this morning in Sunday school. I haven't seen them in a little while because of joint Sunday schools for the Christmas season, and again, being sick and all that fun stuff that comes along with it. So today kind of feels like a reunion for me, and it's, it's, it's good for my spirits. Uh, but before we jump into the message this morning, let's bow and ask God to bless this time that we have together. Heavenly Father, those whom you have called to your Son, you call to live obediently. You call us to live and walk in the light. Lord, as we open your word this morning and see the things you have for us, would you sanctify us by your spirit, enable us to live as we are called, cause us to hate the sin that lives in the darkness and to embrace the light of the gospel. I pray that I would decrease and that Christ increase, for it is in his name we pray, amen. Last week, we began a series in the epistle of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, if they're already open there from the Scripture reading, you can keep them there. If you've closed them, you can open them back up to chapter 1. And there are interesting concepts to think about when we consider the world around us and the universe that exists. There is an astounding number of people that say that we, human beings, cannot be the only intelligent life forms in the universe. Our planet is not that significant in the grand scheme of things. Our galaxy is simply one of billions of galaxies in the universe. So, if there is a God who made all things, he wouldn't just make us and then leave everything else. And if there isn't a God, then, he like, then, he, then the likelihood of other creatures and being evolved from microorganisms or whatever on other planets is actually quite likely if we look at ourselves. But if we are the only intelligent life forms in the universe, the universe is very unbalanced when we think about it from that perspective. And this idea of balance has driven many to come up with different ideas of how the universe should function and how things ought to work. For example, the idea of yin and yang, opposites yet interconnected forces. Good and evil must exist together. In light, there is a little bit of darkness, and in darkness, there is a little bit of light. It comes down to balance and control. But here, in verse 5 of the first chapter of John's epistle, John tells us something contrary to what the world says. God is light, and in him, no darkness at all. When you read the different legends and mythologies of other gods and demigods and cultures, you will see that they are just basically overpowered humans. They are selfish, 
They think as humans do. They act in the ways that humans do. They indulge in human pleasures as we do. And they do both good and evil. And all of this is because they're made up by human men, by the imaginations of us. They have an origin, they have a beginning, and they have an end. They live and can even die. This is because they are limited by the finite minds of men. There is no way we could ever come up with Yahweh. He is infinite. There is no way we could ever come up with an everlasting being and then decide to worship him. And he would have to be good and evil because we can't comprehend something that is fully and always good. But God is always good. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no evil. There is no sin. There is no darkness. Despite what the critics might say and how they bend and twist Scripture to make God out to be who they want him to be. John tells us right here in verse 1 that he is light and in him no darkness at all. Now, Pastor covered last week how we can take this message that John is presenting to us and that we can trust it to know that it is in fact true. John was an eyewitness account to the person, the work, the ministry, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, we have looked upon and touched with our own hands, as, it's, as he says in the beginning of this book. And this idea of God being light stresses the holiness of God, the reverence of God, the glory of God, that he is above everything, he is beyond our capacity to think of, and yet he still allows us to. He has still revealed to us a way that we can understand to a point who he is and his character. This idea of God being light can bring into our minds a number of different things. It could bring in what was just spoken of, the good versus evil, light versus darkness. It could bring into our minds the first day of creation when God said, let there be light, and there was light, the first day before the sun and the moon and the stars were even created. And we can take this imagery from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 23, and it says this, and the city, and that is the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We just left the Christmas season, and we read that those who were in darkness have seen a great light, the hope that the coming Messiah provided, the salvation for the people of God that was obtained by Christ in his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. In so many stories, light represents this idea of hope and victory over evil and over darkness. It represents good. In the old westerns, you always knew who the good guy was, right? Why? Because he wore what color hat? He wore a white hat, and the bad guy was always wearing the black hat. In Star Wars, the Jedis focused on the light side of the Force as opposed to the dark side of the Force that the Sith emphasized. In Lord of the Rings, one of the greatest moments in the movies 
was, I don't care how many times I watch this movie, I get chills every time you hear Gandalf say, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day, at dawn look to the east. And those who were being assaulted by the orcs at Helm's Deep looked up upon the hill and there was Gandalf, the white wizard, coming, bringing victory over evil. I get chills every time. But anything our minds come up with will always fall short of the glorious light that is our Lord and Savior. Light is usually associated with the color white to symbolize purity, holiness, whatever you might think of. God is not just good, but he is pure. There is no blemish. There is no defect. And it is because of this that those who are evil and wicked and defiled, those who make a practice of sin, cannot have fellowship or any part with Christ. When Paul is speaking of being unequally yoked with unbelievers, he uses this imagery of light and dark. 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Light is how the Bible describes all things being revealed. When Jesus spoke to his disciples about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, in Luke chapter 12, he says that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light." And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And this can be a scary verse to hear, knowing that all things one day will be revealed from everybody. Everything said, done, and thought in secret will one day come into the light. Pastor Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church in Phoenix, Arizona, said this this week on Facebook. God knows our secret places. He knows about the bitterness and the secret hate. We may live pretending that it isn't the case. We may put on the Christian exterior and fool the people around us. However, the one before it truly counts to repent before knows that, and that supremely ought to be the reason enough to put those sins to death. The pretending is empty and truly exhausting. The Lord Jesus had a lot of righteous indignation towards sin. However, religious hypocrisy was clearly among his deepest of hatred. We're not fooling him. Sanctification is only real if it is at the heart level. Anything else is fiction and acting. Pretending is meaningless and will give an account for the masks we wear. But for those in Christ, this day is not one to be feared. This day will be the best day because we will see our Savior face to face because our sins are covered, forgiven, and taken upon Christ on the cross. We stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, this is indeed the worst day, for their sins are not covered, washed by the blood of Christ. For the Christian, the light is warm and welcoming, Light that brings us to embrace our Father. For the non-Christian, the light is unwelcome. For their whole lives, they hid in the dark. They thought they were safe in the dark. And they will be cast into everlasting darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who walk in the darkness 
can have no fellowship with the one who is light. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now this verse really gets me when I read it. And the reason is that I believe that the main issue faced in the church today, and we can probably disagree with this, and I'm sure there are people who do, but personally, I think it comes in two categories. Those who think they have fellowship with God, but they don't, and those who claim fellowship with God who don't. And there is a difference between the two. One is convincing yourself, despite what Scripture says or what others say. The other is being convinced by someone else, despite what Scripture says. But either one, the Bible calls these people liars. They proclaim to the world in one way or another that they belong to Christ, yet their actions or lives don't reflect that of a truly converted person, whether that be a public witness or a private sin. Let's look at the first of those two who they claim or they, they think they have fellowship with God. This is an incredibly dangerous place to be, and I think this is the most common place people find themselves. They have been deceived by false teachers and antichrists to believe that they are secure when they are not. You see this a lot in the hyper-charismatic and the seeker church movement, where conversion is walking up to the front during an altar call, or raising your hand at a very emotional moment, or praying a certain prayer at one time in your life, then living however you want, thinking that you can live a life of sin, and you're good because you got saved one time when you said a special prayer. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren invited the readers to pray. It says this, I invite you to bow your head and quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you, and I receive you. And if you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations, welcome to the family of God. Now, this book is one of the best-selling books of all time, with over 33 million copies sold. It places at number 51 on the Wikipedia list of the top-selling books of all time, but we can actually probably bring that number down to 45 if we take all the Harry Potter books and put them as one. So we're looking at 33 million people reading that all they have to do is say a certain prayer with a certain amount of sincerity and that they are now part of the family of God. In the purpose-driven life, there is no gospel message, there is no call to repentance, there is no explanation of the wrath of God or the punishment that Christ took upon the cross in your place for your sins. He begins the book by saying, it's not about you, which we can all agree, okay, it's not about us, but then Rick Warren goes to make the book all about us. Now, do you see how dangerous this is? Then the second group who claim fellowship with God, these are usually people who cause the first group to think that they have fellowship with God. These are the leaders, the wolves, the false teachers. And the danger for them is twofold. There is the danger that they bring to those who they are leading, and there is the danger they bring to themselves with the wrath of God. 
Look for a moment at James chapter 3, verse 1, that says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Church, theology matters. Right doctrine matters. What we tell others about God and Christ matters. How we live matters. The witness that we present to the world matters. There's a key word in verse 6 of John chapter, or 1 John chapter 1 that I think should be the focus in this section, and that is the word walk. And the, the Greek word here can indicate walking. It's used of Christ as he goes from one place to another. But it has a deeper meaning of how one conducts his or her life. I'll give you a few examples. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, here's the word, walk in newness of life. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's just to give you a few examples. But know that this verse is not talking about a Christian who just simply backslides or falls into a specific sin for a short time, but one who makes a pattern of, pattern of life in sin, someone who is deceived, who, seeks, who sees nothing wrong with the way that they live or what they do. But this should serve as a warning to us Christians to not grow content with the sins that we struggle with. This should encourage us to fight truth and nail against those sins that we are so susceptible to. And each of us faces something different. Take care to do everything you need to do in order to put those sins to death and quickly. Repent and flee to Christ, who is always willing to forgive. In a few weeks, we will get to chapter 2, verse 1, which says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John's purpose in writing this is so that we may not sin. And we should take that to heart. We may not sin. But John knows that we're not going to reach perfection in this side of eternity. So he encourages us that we are not left alone. We have an advocate, a mediator. John places this warning of walking in darkness for our own sake, that we might examine ourselves, that we might take this precious confession of faith seriously and live according to the word, not according to the world. And then he offers encouragement in verse 7. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, we have this idea of a pattern of living, walking in the light, living in the light, walking in accordance to Scripture and the commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not because we are saved by doing so, but because we recognize the price that was paid for us to live a life honoring and obeying our Savior because of who he is and what he has done. That one of the proofs of a true faith is the growing in holiness, the being sanctified, a growing and lasting love for the law of God and for the church. That's very important too. Fellowship with one another. One of the lies that is going around is this idea of, I can be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. I don't need to have that fellowship with other, other believers because other believers are frustrating and I've been hurt too many times in the past by the church, so I have my own personal relationship with God. Now, this idea is so popular right now, but here's the thing. You cannot have Christ and not his bride. You don't get to go to heaven and find a corner and sit away from everybody else for all of eternity twiddling your thumbs. And maybe you have been hurt by the church or someone in the church before. The church is made up of a bunch of imperfect sinners. There are frustrating and difficult people in the church, and I'd be willing to go out on a limb and say that you at one time are one of those frustrating and difficult people, and I am also one of those frustrating and difficult people. There's a saying that says, if you ever find the perfect church, don't ever join it because once you do, it won't be perfect anymore. We are all sinners. We are all frustrating. We are all fallen, and we're all going to give somebody a pain in the neck at some point in our lives. So, but if God is gracious with you, forgiving you of your sins, so be gracious and patient with others and extend forgiveness, grace, and patience to them. One sign of a true Christian is love for the brethren. And we'll be talking about this in a few weeks in more detail as we get further into this book, but it should be mentioned here as well. If we walk in the light and are identifying with God who is light and in him there is no darkness at all, we should make a habit of examining ourselves, repenting when we do sin. Every time we come to the Lord's table, we are instructed to examine ourselves. One of the ways we can be assured of our salvation is looking at how we live our lives. That those who walk in the light are those whose sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in reference to a life lived in light or darkness and forgiveness. Okay? MacArthur says this, A true Christian does not see God's promise of forgiveness as a license to sin, a way to abuse his love and presume on his grace. Rather, he sees God's gracious forgiveness as the means to spiritual growth and sanctification. He continually thanks God for his great love and willingness to forgive. So when we think of God's grace towards us, let it be encouragement to walk and live in the light, truly in the light, with a clear conscience, knowing that we rely fully and completely on God, that when we do sin, we don't brush it off, but we grieve over it. 
that we hate the sin that we once loved, that hating our sin more and more, growing in holiness, is a good sign. And using that desire, and using that to desire a life of holiness and obedience to God. Verse 8, Pastor will flesh out a bit more next week, but let's look at it for just a moment. It says, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There are people out there that believe that we can achieve perfection in this life, or at least a life where repentance is not needed. But John is very clear here that to have this view, we are deceiving ourselves. To believe ourselves to be sinless or have the ability to live sinlessly is to say we no longer see the necessity of the cross. It is to say Christ did his work and now I'm going to take credit for myself and my own holiness. It's to make it about us and not Christ. And this is also a dangerous place to find ourselves. And this is where the world falls short. If you've ever heard of him, uh, Mr. Ray Comfort, he has a whole series of videos on YouTube where he goes out and does evangelism. And when he approaches somebody, usually he'll ask him a few questions, get to know him a little bit, and then he'll start off by saying, do you think you're a good person? And I'd say about 99% of the people he interviews will say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. And he says, so do you think if you die, you'd go to heaven or hell? And he says, I think heaven, because I've done more good than I've done bad. And then he takes the law, and he so brilliantly does this, and he says, okay, let's, let's, let's put you to the test. And he'll start, how many things in your life have you stolen? And he'll say, well, I don't know, a couple things. And he goes, okay, what do you call somebody who steals? Well, a thief. He says, okay, cool, so what are you? A thief. Awesome. We're doing great so far. And he goes on to the next. How many lies have you told in your life? And that's usually an easier question for people to answer. And they say usually more, time, more lies than they can count. And he says, okay, so you're a liar. What, so what does that make you? And they usually say a liar. And he says, no, it makes you a lying thief. So there's double, double points against them. And he goes through the law. He asks, you know, have you ever taken God's name in vain? Have you ever uh, had sex outside of marriage? Have you ever, and he just goes through it, and they answer, and so he finally says, on judgment day, if you're judged by just the Ten Commandments, which you have just admitted to me that you've broken all of them, would you be guilty or innocent? And they, well, I suppose guilty, and he says, heaven or hell? And they, well, yes, by that standard, hell, even though there are still the people who say, well, I still think heaven, because I've still done more than, more good than bad, and he compares it. He says, well, it's like going into a courtroom and the judge is about to give you your sentence. And he says, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And you say, well, judge, I helped old ladies across the street. I gave to charity. I did all of these good things. And the judge says, that's fantastic, but that has nothing to do with your case. It's like we're presenting God our own righteousness. And God says it has nothing to do with your case but the world sees themselves as far better than they are. And a true Christian, I think, should see ourselves as far worse than we actually are. If we actually understood our sin, if we actually had a full comprehension of our sin, I think it would utterly ruin us if we could fully understand that. Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. And I think when we examine ourselves and we see the sin that we have committed in our own lives, I think we could all probably say that we are the chief of sinners. But that's what makes the cross 
so beautiful. That's what makes grace so inconceivable because God did it when we do not deserve it. So church, be encouraged this morning. Rejoice in knowing that you have such a great and a powerful Savior who did not simply make salvation possible to you, but who actually saves and loves and sanctifies you. That he who began a good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You are indeed precious to him. And know that when we do sin, and that shame and guilt comes crashing in, our tendency is to be like Adam and to hide from God and to cover our sin. But I say to you, run to him. Cling to him. If you belong to him, there is no reason to fear, for he is willing and able to forgive. He is willing and ready to take you as a father is willing and ready to take in a disobedient child. It's the message of the gospel, and it's a message that the world cannot provide. It's a message that all these other religions and ideologies and belief systems can never actually provide because everything the world says is it's up to you. Just be good. Just be good. Do more. Do better. And the truth is we can't. But Christ put himself, he took on himself human nature, lived a perfect life, the life that you and I should live in obedience to the Father. And he was put to death in a death that you and I deserve for our sins. And he took upon himself the sins of the world. He was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins, that look to him as the one and only Savior, as their only true hope, he will save. That is the promise of the gospel. So if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, if he is not your Lord and Savior, I say this to you right now, you are walking in darkness. You are not in the light. The darkness or the light is repelling to you. But hear this, repent of your sins, turn to Christ and come into the light and be welcomed truly into the family of God, escape the wrath that is to come, and flee to your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning that you have poured out your grace upon us, that you are a perfect Savior who has drawn us to yourself, who delights in saving, who delights in forgiving. Father, sanctify us, lead us in holiness so that we would learn to further hate our sins that we would not hide in darkness only to await the day all things are brought to light, but to walk in the light with a clear conscience, to live in the light. Father, encourage our hearts as we continue to worship this morning, as we sing, great is your faithfulness, for it is truly, truly great. Let Let the rest of this time this morning be glorifying to your Son, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen.